Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Hi, this is Kip Boyle. Welcome to Your Cyber Path. Glad that you're uh, back here with us. Jason is uh, with me today. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Kip. How are you? I'm doing really well. Um, so I'm looking at the editorial calendar, and we're recording this episode in late April, but it's now early June is probably when you're hearing this uh, in our audience. And, um, it, you know, summer. <laughs> Summer's just around the corner. Kids are about to get out of school. Um, and so I was thinking that this is a good opportunity for us to mention a couple of things which we think are going to help you. First of all, a lot of people over the summer are like, uh, you know, it's time for me to go on vacation. I'm just going to, you know, not work on, you know, uh, advancing my career, my professional skills. I'm just going to, you know, just forget all that. And I'm just going to enjoy myself. And there certainly is something to be said for it, no doubt about it. But I think that, uh, you know, that doing that completely could be a, a real missed opportunity because this is a great time, I think, to to choose a goal for yourself, to get smart on something and and not waste the, the opportunity, because I really do think there's an opportunity here. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's a low season for hiring. We know that. We know that hiring season is going to pick back up again in the fall after uh, people come back from summer break. So if you're thinking about getting a different job this fall, think about what's the one thing that I could learn this summer that would help me stand out? And uh, as far as hiring seasons go, we did a whole episode, right? And I think you told me it was episode 57, which is the best time of the year to get hired. So, um, yeah. So actually, there's a lot we, we want you to do over the summer. Uh, does that sound about right to you, Jason? Yeah, exactly. I know we've, we've talked about this a lot in episode 57 in that episode, best time of the year to get hired. And in that episode, we talked a lot about the different hiring seasons and the peaks in the valley. And mm -hmm. the reason that summer tends to be a little bit slower for hiring is because a lot of people are out enjoying their summer. Um, so if you're applying for a job, the person who's gonna have to go through those, the HR person, uh, or the person who's gonna be doing the hiring, the hiring manager, they may not be available during the summer to interview you or look at your resume because they're out on their summer vacation with their mm -hmm. kids and things like that. So I tend to use the summer as a time for us to really upskill ourselves and get ourselves ready for the next hiring season, which usually kicks off late September, moving into October and November uh, as one of the big hiring periods, especially if you're looking for Department of Defense, military, or government work, because their fiscal year starts October 1st. So that's when they start hiring a lot more people again, because by you know June, July, August, a lot of their money has been used up uh, throughout the year, and they're waiting for the next bulk of money to come on October right. 1st to do the next hiring. So, so keep that in mind. And then you know, the other thing I just want to mention is People may be wondering, why are we filming this in April right now? And we're going to release it in June. So I just want to talk about that for a, a second here. Um, Kip and I are filming ahead a little bit because we have a lot going on this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we won't be able to as easily get the podcast filmed and recorded because of time zones. Um, this episode is coming out at the beginning of June. Uh, during that time, I'm actually going to be over in Europe uh, for three weeks um, doing some work over there. Uh, next week, uh, as you're listening to this, mid-June, Kip's actually going to be leaving to go to the Philippines for, for a job that he's doing. Uh, do you want to speak about that, Kip? What are you doing over there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be gone for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's, it's a two-week uh, uh, piece of work that I'm doing, 
And then since, you know, traveling all that way is no small thing, uh, my wife and I decided let's take another couple of weeks after that and just, you know, uh, have a summer break for ourselves. So I'm actually going to be out of the country for a month in the Philippines, which I've never been there before. But what I'm doing there is it turns out that the Philippines, uh, Papua New Guinea and uh, and the Marshall Islands are, are uh, really interested in increasing their uh, cybersecurity workforce. But, they, but what they're struggling with is that they don't have a really solid base uh, of training opportunities for people who want to get a cybersecurity job. And so I'm going over there to do a train the trainer where we're going to be bringing people into the Philippines who are going to then learn from me. I'm actually, I've actually spent the last nine months building an undergraduate course in Introduction to Cybersecurity. And then I'm going to teach them how to teach the course. And then they're going to go back to their institutions. And then they're going to uh, enroll students in the fall. And then they're going to take their first run at teaching that course. And uh, I thought I might mention that I, I did something a little different this time. So we actually did a, a flipped classroom approach. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, where you do more online and then you do the in-person. So it's like four days online, one day in person or some kind of a hybrid like that. Yeah. Whereas a traditional approach, you do most of it in the class and then you go home and do your homework. This is right. kind of the opposite of that. And that's why they call it flipped. So yep. I thought that this would be a good opportunity to use this because, uh, well, first of all, it puts more emphasis on the practical application of what you learn when you're with other people, which I think is more powerful than trying to figure it out all on your own in the, you know, in the dead of night, because that's where people sometimes do their homework. Uh, plus, these, these, these college professors and other trainers, um, they're going to have all these pre-recorded lessons that I'm making for them. And so they might decide like, gosh, I'm really struggling to teach this course. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use these pre-recorded videos that we got, you know, that we got from Kip and then he'll do the lectures and then I'll just focus on doing the practical exercises and answering people's questions when they come into the classroom. So just really gives them a, a ton of support as they go forward and they do this for the first time. And, you know, eventually they could record their own lectures and, you know, take it in whatever direction makes sense for them. But I'm really excited about this. I, I think it's I think it's neat to be part of an effort to actually, you know, establish, um, you know, the infrastructure for creating a workforce in these countries. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the flip classroom model. We actually do that a lot with the on training. Um, there's a lot of countries that we work with down in Latin America and the Caribbean, and they don't have enough qualified instructors yeah. to run these programs at universities. So what we offer them is a hybrid course where normally if you had one Security Plus instructor, for example, that would be a 40-hour course that week. And um, they would just you know sit in the classroom for 40 hours, and then on Friday they would take the exam. The big problem is they don't have enough instructors for the demand they have. So what we've done is we've created a hybrid course where they're, the students are going through our courses and they come in one day a week during their college class. And during that time, the instructor is being used for the Q&A, for the lab, right. for anything right. like that, that the students are struggling with. But the rest of the time, they're doing the work on their own by going through our courses using the video. Um, and we've partnered with several different universities down in the Caribbean and Latin America to do that type of a program. And what they've found is that one instructor can now support five classes of 20 to 30 students each instead of one class of 20 to 30 students each with that same one instructor by doing this flipped classroom approach. And the students are still getting great value and great benefit from this because they're able to get the material from us 
and then get the questions answered with a lot of hands-on ex- practice and exercises from their in-person instructor. Right. Yeah, it's really powerful. We're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of professors and instructors used flipped classroom in a lot of different settings, not just cybersecurity. And, um, and I can tell you that uh, as a student, I would have loved to, to have learned this way. So I just think it's, uh, I think it's a great opportunity for, for everybody um, in any event. So what we're here today to talk about in this episode is uh, to continue our conversation on security design principles. Okay, so let me just do a quick recap so you remember where we're at. So we've previously mentioned in a, in a, in a previous episode that there was this paper. It was published in 1975 by Salser and Schroeder, and it contains their ideas for these t- 10 security design principles. And their work was so far reaching and so, so important that we still use these today, uh, you know, 50 years later, which is amazing to me because uh, technical products come and go. And, uh, and yet here we are with something so durable. And so we wanted to review these. So we did a quick review for you in a previous episode. Last time we did a deep dive into least privilege. What we want to do today is dive deeply into something called psychological acceptability, which is another of the 10 uh, security design principles. Now, if you use these principles on the job, you are going to do really, really well. You're going to stand out. The quality of your work is going to be much better. And I don't know that there's any certification out there that teaches you this stuff. uh, But I'm telling you, this is good stuff to know. Uh, Jason, is there, tell, remind me, is there a certification that teaches this? So as I go through things like CISSP and CISM and Security Plus and things like that, we talk a lot about these different components, but we never say this is the Salzer and Schroeder uh, paper and here's the 10 things at once. But like last week, we talked about least privilege. We always know we talk about least privilege inside Mm -hmm. of uh, these certifications, but we don't necessarily call it like, oh, this was defined by Salzer and Schrodinger. I didn't ever hear those two names or that paper until you brought it up as we started going into this. Um, but it has infected the entire industry through everything we teach over the 50 years because it's so fundamental. Right, right. So it's present, but it's unsaid. Yeah. And I think a lot of people uh, don't understand just how just how tremendously important these principles are. And that's why I believe uh, that if you can grab onto these and internalize them and use them to guide your work, this, this is one of the very few constants you'll experience in, in this career that, that you have in cybersecurity. So uh, all right. So without further ado, let's let's go ahead and, and open up uh, this idea of psychological acceptability. Now, I got to tell you, I have I have uh, I have struggled with this with other people because I've worked in all kinds of different environments. Right. So in the military, for example, is super strict. And, you know, the, the controls are what they are. And if you don't do it, you can go to military prison. I mean, it's really, really super strict. And I've worked in commercial environments where people tried to enforce that kind of discipline and they couldn't do it and they didn't understand why. And this is why psychological acceptability. Nobody in the private sector has signed up for military-esque, you know, controls and, uh, uh, you know, uh, rigidity and all that stuff. And, and so I've seen people go, I don't understand. Why aren't they following my controls? You know, we have to do this to be safe. And I'm just like, oh, man, sit down. We got to talk about something here because you're going to get yourself in big, big trouble. Have you seen this too, Jason? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, psychological acceptability is always a big challenge, right? Um, and I think it's important for us to define that at, yep. as we start talking about it, right? So when we talk about psychological acceptability, uh, it's defined in the paper as the protection mechanism should be easy to use, at least as easy as not using it. And so a lot of times we come up with these great controls and we make things really, really difficult because we want more security. But all that security means we have less operations or less usability, and that becomes the struggle. So with psychological acceptability, we want to make things easier to use while still providing high levels of security and control. So, uh, you know, I, I think back to some things I've dealt with. I was an IT director back in 2008, and back then we realized there was a big threat of people taking thumb drives, USB thumb drives, and sticking them into our, our machines. And there was things like auto-running malware and other things, and people would drop these USB drives in parking lots and places like that, hoping Somebody is curious, picks it up, takes it into work, plugs it in the machine to see what's on it. Maybe they can identify if this was Joe or Sally's uh, thumb drive to give it back to them. Well, as soon as they plug it in the machine, auto runs happen, it runs the software, malware infects the system, then it starts spreading across the entire network. So one of the things that we decided in our organization was that we were not going to be using USB thumb drives. It was not allowed anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a great policy from a security standpoint, but it adds a lot of operational challenges because if Kip wants to take information from one of our networks to one of our other networks that's air-gapped, that's going to be difficult to do because you can't send it by email. You can't send it by FTP or, or SSH. You have to do it from one system to the other by putting it on a thumb drive, burning it to a CD, putting it on a hard drive, something to get it over. And the easiest way is a thumb drive, but the other problem with that is every time you move from one system to the other, you could bring malware over, right? Um, mm -hmm. When you think back to the Iranian uh, nuclear reactor oh, uh, yeah. with the Stuxnet virus, mm -hmm. that was the infection vector. It was an air gap network, but somebody took a thumb drive from a production network, moved it into the nuclear uh, command network, and, and then it infected the machine and had problems. So this is a big threat. And so what we ended up doing was we said, no more USB. And we blocked it both from a software perspective and a hardware perspective. But that meant we had to come up with some other solution for our users to be able to get stuff from one to the other. And that meant we, in our case, we were burning CDs and DVDs. And that also had another effect. We had to budget for all these CDs and DVDs because they're one-time write devices. Right. Otherwise, you have the problem of bringing malware over again. And, and so it had all these other unintended consequences. And so a lot of people started saying, eh, this is too hard. We want to find a way around it, right? And that's what happens if you don't have this psychological acceptability and you make things too difficult, even though they're more secure, people will find ways around it. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's actually an awful place to be when you're responsible for implementing a security policy because you think that everything is secure because you've got all these fantastic controls, but then you've got your workforce is like, screw this, I'm going to get it done some other easier, more convenient way. Do they tell you they're doing that? No, of course not. And so you get what we call a false sense of security where you think everything's fine, but actually what's going on is everything's completely out of control and you have no idea. And if you knew what was going on, you'd be freaking out and you'd be trying to take some kind of action and you should, um, but you just don't have any idea. And so psychological acceptability, if you don't pay attention to this, it can backfire on you and you can end up in an awful situation where some security incident happens and you realize upon reflection that the reason why it happened is because you were too much of a hard ass. You know, you didn't pay attention to psychological acceptability. You didn't get people to buy in. And so they started working around you. And I've got a story I want to tell to illustrate this point. So I remember working at a place where if you wanted to do uh, remote email, and this is before cloud got really uh, you know, popular, you had to, first of all, uh, go through the VPN that had two-factor authentication. 
And then you had to go to email, which had two-factor authentication, a completely separate two-factor authentication. And the security people thought this was marvelous because, you know, this is really going to keep out the, the, you know, the, the people who want to mess with us. But it backfired on them because it was so onerous that people who needed to do remote email just didn't do that. And instead, what they did is they created throwaway Gmail accounts and they used that for their remote email solution. And the security people were looking at the utilization of, you know, the VPN and the remote access and they were looking at the logs. And they're like, this is marvelous. Everything's working just the way it's supposed to. Nobody's calling us because they can't operate the controls. Yep. You know, like we're winners. Like this is the best thing ever. And they were so proud of themselves. But at the same time, all the sensitive data was flying around in Gmail uh, and going through, uh, you know, the unsecured channels. And it took them a while to figure out what was going on. And even then, they, they, they instead of sort of like admitting that, the, that they had shot themselves in the foot. They doubled down and actually would not admit that, you know, that they had made things too tight. They blamed everybody else. It was a disaster, just a total disaster. And they ended up not, not keeping their jobs. They rolled other people in who lowered the barriers so that it was easy to use the official system again. And man, did I learn a lot from watching that go down. Yeah, I've seen a lot of similar things to that. You know, I'm thinking back to the beginning of COVID in 2020. Uh, I was working with the government at the time, and they decided, hey, we need to have a way to communicate with our employees because most of our stuff was done on a secret or top secret network. But now we told half our workforce to stay home uh, every week, you know, every other week. So essentially in our group, we said, okay, Jason, you're coming in week A, Kip, you're coming in week B, and you're both sharing the job. And that way, if Jason got sick and he had to stay home and he infected the rest of the workforce, we had that B team to take over and vice versa. And so we had A, B, and C, and we had a C reserve that we could pull in if A or B got sick. And what happened was they said, well, we have no way to contact people except for their cell phone. So they went to Microsoft, they got licenses under O365, they set up Microsoft Teams, said everybody can use Teams as a way to communicate unclassified information such as, are you coming to work today? Are you sick? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Are you checking in and, and mustering every day? Make sure you're alive, all that kind of stuff, right? But the problem is, in true military fashion, we wanted to make sure we had lots of security controls. So they set up things like two-factor authentication. They set it up so you could only access that if you were in the U.S. or in a particular location. And unfortunately for military folks, we're all over the world. So the people who made these rules were in Washington, and they were thinking, oh, we're all in the U.S. And they forgot about the other you know, 20 30% of the military and DOD that's outside the U.S. in Italy, Japan, or wherever. And they had problems logging into this until they started opening this up. And so it was that same thing where they, they added too many controls and they broke a good thing. Um, and so, you know, you had the ability to use Teams, you had the ability to use um, Microsoft Storage in the cloud with Azure. And because it was so difficult, people just said, forget it, I'm just going to throw it in my Google Drive or my Dropbox, or I'll use Slack or I'll use WhatsApp. And they started using all sorts of other things that didn't have all those controls because it was easier for people to use. And even if you had a personal cell phone, which is what most people had, you couldn't install Teams. And so you had to go use a laptop to check in. And it was all these kind of things that were just broken the way that they implemented it. And that's what we're talking about is you need to make things easy. Right. Easy um, and secure both at the same time. Yeah. And is that tough? Yeah, it's tough, of course. But that's why you that's why you're here. That's why we want you. Right. Because you're the one that has to balance this stuff the best you can. You're not always going to get it right. But, you know, you can't go out there and just expect that everybody is going to want to do it the most secure way and jump through all these different hoops because they won't. They might do it once or twice. And after that, they're just like, screw this. Now, listen, I want to give you a tip. 
if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, psychological acceptability, this is really interesting. Never thought about this before. Um, I want you to ask yourself, have you ever circumvented a control because it was too difficult or time consuming? I want you to ask yourself and be honest because I have. Oh, I definitely have. <laughs> okay, now this is how it's going to come back to you. When I interview people, depending on, you know, what the position is and so on and so forth, I'll sometimes ask that question. Have you ever circumvented a control because it was too difficult or too time consuming for you? And I let and I and I, I want to see how honest people are because everybody should say yes, because I'd be really shocked if there was somebody out there who'd never circumvented a control, never took a shortcut. And if I think you have and you're like, oh, no, I've never done that. You know, I'm straight as an arrow. Then I'm just going to be like, I can't work with you bringing you on my team, you know, because you're not you don't get it. Right. So um, so be prepared. Think about what would happen if a hiring manager actually asked you this question. How would you answer it? And and how would you how would you be honest about it? Could you be honest about it? I I want you to think about this. That's how important psychological acceptability is to me. Uh, when I'm running my teams, Jason, have you ever asked a question like this in a hiring process? Yeah, definitely. And usually what I'll do is I'll have a follow-up question once they say yes. And I'll say, mm-hmm. okay, tell me more about that. And what could you have done to do it in a secure way? Because you know, using the example I just gave you of, of Teams, for example, right? Or the earlier one when I gave with USB thumb drives, we can stop this control and say, we're going to do something different. But what is that different thing? And how would you have done it different to make it so it was an acceptable solution, right? Uh, in our case, you know, when we talk about, you know, teams and things like that, you know, it may be, you know what, we're not going to use teams because it's too hard, but we're not going to use Slack either because early in 2020, Slack didn't have end-to-end encryption. It only had the web browser HTTPS connection. Um, but WhatsApp supposedly had end-to-end encryption, or you could use something like Telegram or Signal, or you find an acceptable solution that meets your requirements that people can use, um, but still gives you a level of security. And that's kind of the answers I'm looking for, right? If you said, you know what, I couldn't use the secure email system, but instead we ended up getting everybody who needed to communicate something like ProtonMail because ProtonMail mm-hmm. does have email encryption in a very easy to use format as long as you're both using ProtonMail. So if I need to send information to you and I sent you, <clears throat> excuse me, if I sent you, for example, to the Philippines um, and I'm here back in the States, we might set up a, a Proton account just for this trip so we can still communicate securely and encrypted without having to go through all the effort of setting up uh, GPG keys or PGP keys or anything like that. And so that would be a good acceptable answer of, yes, we understand the policy is this way. We decided to do it this way. It has an equivalent level of security or pretty good security that is close enough that we're going to accept that. And we took that risk as an organization. Mm. Um, And I think that's an acceptable way to do it. The other thing I think about with this whole psychological acceptability um, is, you know, what is a good example of psychological acceptability where you have something that is going to give you better security while still being much easier for your people to use? I know we've mentioned this on the podcast previously, but my favorite example of this is a password manager, right? Um, and, and I know you've talked about this before, Kip, when you've talked yep. to companies of, hey, you should be using password managers for a bunch of reasons. Why should they use a password manager? And how does that fit into this psychological acceptability thing that we're talking about? So, um, yeah, this is a wonderful example because I think a password manager is one of those rare security things where you're actually going to, if you do it well, you're going to get more security and people are going to be more productive because without a password manager, people, it's really burdensome to do passwords correctly. You can't ever reuse a password and your passwords or passphrases should be long. And, uh, and, and that's just not psychologically acceptable for human beings to be able to do that. So in order to do passwords in a durable way, you really do need some kind of help. And a password manager is the way 
to go, I think. And you also have to choose the right password manager because, you know, people are like, well, I'm, I'm scared to use a password manager because I'm putting all my passwords, all my eggs in one basket. What if that basket falls and breaks, you know, and somebody gets all my passwords? And that's a valid concern. So you have to choose the right password. You have to choose one that's attack resistant and so forth. But, um, but you know, if you're using a password manager, you're going to get that secure, that extra security because it's going to help you do passwords correctly. But you're going to get great productivity because the password manager is going to choose the passwords for you. And when the time comes to enter a password, the password manager is going to retrieve the correct password, drop it into, you know, the password field and off you go. No typos. You don't have to sit there and go, is that an O or a zero? I can't tell, you know, nothing like that. And so, yeah, so password managers and people are a little um, skittish about using a password manager in the beginning. But when I explained to them what I just said, hey, this is going to give you more security and productivity. Give it a shot. It's a winner. People like it. So uh, I think it's a great example of psychological acceptability. Yeah, 100%. You know, I use uh, Bitwarden as my password manager in my company. That's what we all use. It allows us to share passwords between people without showing that person the password and still letting them log in. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of software that we use in our business. For instance, this podcast, we use a, a tool to manage the podcast and push it out to all of our listeners. And that tool doesn't allow us to have multiple users. It only allowed us to have one login of username and password. And so it's, you know, Jason's email and a password I selected. Well, if I create the password, that's something I'm going to memorize and share it with my team. Uh, they may now know the password I use for a lot of other things because a lot of people used to say, you know, you have the word password and then you put like a two or three digit code in front of it. Like, you know, if it's podcast, I'd put P-O-D password, mm. right? Uh, if it's YouTube, it'd be Y-T, you know, password or whatever. And if I give them one of those, they now know all my passwords for everything. So instead, by using a, a password manager, I can use a long, random 20 character password and I can share that to my team and they don't even have to see it. They just hit the login button and it will actually fill it in for them. And That's it's great. fully stored and encrypted and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, if you want to learn more about password managers, we did talk about this previously on the podcast back in episode 92 in the episode called Password Managers. Uh, and we talked about things like LastPass. We talked about OnePass. Uh, we talked about uh, Bitwarden and some of the other ones out there. And this idea of psychological acceptability of why and how you can get people to accept these uh, password managers because they are easier to use while still giving you better security. So right. if you want to check that out, just go to yourcyberpath.com slash 92, and that'll take you right to that episode. Perfect. Well, um, as we wrap up this episode, because I think, I think we've done a really good job of thoroughly covering this idea of psychological acceptability, uh, I just want to say that um, it's a people thing. That's what I wanted to say. That's what I wanted to say. Okay. You know, a lot of people come into cybersecurity, and they're just, um, they're dazzled by the technology. I get it, right? But really, at the end of the day, this is a people thing. And if you think you can just avoid dealing with people, if you don't like dealing with people and you think, oh, you know, it's, it's all about technology, it's not. It's not. And I hope we've made that point here as we wrap up. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as we wrap this up, I just want to say uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Your Cyber Path. Uh, I hope that you're going to join us next time for another great episode as we continue to move forward closer and closer to that 100 episode mark uh next time will be episode 99 and then we'll be doing our 100th episode uh celebration so definitely check that out we're, we're trying to plan something good for that so uh stick with us there uh in the meantime if you love the podcast we would really love to have you come over to yourcyberpath.com on the front page you could sign up for our mentor notes our mentor notes are our um, bi-weekly mentor notes that are sent out by kip 
where he talks about all things about cybersecurity, about the industry, about threats and vulnerability, about hiring and firing, about trends, and other things you need to be aware of in your daily work as a cybersecurity analyst or cybersecurity professional. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, it's totally free. We're not going to be advertising to you. We're not bugging you to buy stuff. We just want to help you. And the Mentor Notes is the best way for us to do that at scale because there's only two of us and there's lots of you listening. So if you do that, it allows us to give you great information. If you have any questions, you can always reply to those and get back into Kip or Mai's inbox directly and we can help you as well there. So uh, definitely check that out over at yourcyberpath.com. But other than that, I want to say thank you again for listening and we will see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyber Path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now. If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com, where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content. 